Happening happened, buried in the well where sink the stories we tell. And so let's throw, as fortune casts its lot of concern, a coin and join our voices in wishing the stories return. Thank you for gracing us with your words once again. Welcome back to Solacine, everyone. This is the eighth week in our story selling series, so we're about halfway through, a little bit over halfway through, which is pretty fun. I'm excited for the conversation today. What are we going to be talking about, Aaron? So lately, like with each episode, I've been trying to find a common theme between the questions. Usually we have three questions. And this week, I'm thinking it's character. Okay. Especially because maybe a little bit of an extraneous uh, mention, but we've been apartment hunting recently. It's true. And the word that always comes to mind, I find, when people talk about apartments is, I just want something with... Character. A little bit of character. That's true. Um, And I don't think it's coincidence that people use that word, so I think we'll get into that later. But also we're talking about villains, and that's a very archetypical, usually the the primary or second most important character in terms of uh, developing a story and plot. And also we are talking about clothes and the way that they basically develop persona or character Mm -hmm. for all of us. So I was pretty proud of myself for coming up with that one. Yeah, that's quite impressive, to be honest, because my thought was these are three completely discrete yeah. topics for today. But yeah, we're talking about clothes, places, and obviously the villain, because we <laughs> like talking about villains, despite this being a very optimistic podcast. Right. And speaking of optimistic podcast, I'm going to be optimistic and hope that everyone listening is subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or SoundCloud or whatever they use. We also have Instagram and TikTok. And also in the description, you'll find our emails. We'd love it if you could contact us there. I personally really enjoy receiving any kind of comments, especially or even like hate-filled ones. So mm. if you have any really like searing criticisms for me, just let me know because I, I basically eat those for breakfast. Yeah, but make sure you address them to Aaron because even the slightest <laughs> criticism makes me very upset. Because today someone commented on Instagram. It was literally a compliment but I just took it really badly. <laughs> like, I'm glad that you guys are outside your comfort zone. And I was like, are you serious? Yeah. So you can send us compliments. You can also do it in the little comments box on Apple Podcasts. Those are very mm-hmm. helpful in terms of like boosting the algorithm. So too, if you want to drop a rating. And we also have Field Notes, which is a weekly email, as Alicia calls it, a love letter to life, to the world or something <laughs> like that, that you can sign up for in the description. And I think that's all. That's all I want to say about that because mm-hmm. I, don't like, I don't like plugging stuff. No. So we're going to start by talking about villains. The question was, what makes a good villain? And it was inspired by the notorious tiny mastermind of Bikini Bottom, Plankton. Mm-hmm. So that's where I started for this uh, question, of course. Okay. In terms of what, show, what makes a good villain, I was thinking, well, even in a show like SpongeBob, wherein morality is very rarely discussed, if Mm -hmm. ever. Like, the plots are usually just silliness. We have a villain, and he's kind of the implicit, here's what's good, here's what's bad. Mm -hmm. Because Plankton, obviously, is always trying to steal the Krabby Patty formula. He's trying to get ahead without having worked for it. and Trying to be deceitful. He lies a lot. He does a lot of bad things um, to try and achieve this goal, typically working solo with, like, a genuine contempt for friendship or people Mm -hmm. I find he has his computer wife who I would say he doesn't really treat the nicest it's true so in Plankton I think what the show does is show us or show the children all the ways that you shouldn't be Mm -hmm. 
it's like you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't cheat, you shouldn't be so contemptful or contemptuous of others because it makes you like this guy. And he's he's shown to be very pitiful and and pathetic, basically, is the word. Like, and mm-hmm. everyone else don't, don't, doesn't like him because he kind of ruins everyone's time. He's always angry. He doesn't seem like a happy person in contrast to all the other characters. Maybe Squidward is the outlier there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, did you have any other notes on Plankton? I did have a note on Plankton, and it was that I find a character like Plankton, or my other example was Newman from Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good Is that analog. they're good villains in comedies, mm. but if you put villains like Newman or Plankton into a serious film, which I feel like a lot of modern films attempt to do, it doesn't work. Okay. Because if you have the kind of jovial dictator who's like, <laughs> oh, but people like go to him for advice, like because SpongeBob yeah. goes to Plankton and like everyone goes to Newman and Seinfeld, it's like it doesn't work in a serious setting. I find mm. it works really well in a comedic setting, and that was my first thought on this question: was the villains have to be well suited to the audience and to the world? Yeah, and to the to the genre. It's interesting you bring that up. Because I think another part of it, especially with Plankton and especially with Newman, is that there's an element of the audience actually prefers these guys or, or really... You like to see them on the yeah, screen. Yeah, really likes watching them. Whereas in a drama, maybe you don't want your villain to be so... Bumbling. Kind of hilariously just, yeah. Uh, devious. Yeah, exactly. And another example I had for a well-suited character to the audience and to the story was Prince Hans from Frozen. Because... He was one of the first villains that came to mind because he was just so evil and like kids got it, but it wasn't like he was kicking puppies and being cruel and like stuff like that the whole time. Yeah. Like, cause he was for 80% of the movie, the good guy, you were rooting for him and Anna. You were like, Oh, they're in love. This is so great. But then when he betrays her and literally tries to kill her, it's like the kids understand like, Oh, he was being deceitful the whole time without like laying it out and saying oh by the way all of these things he was doing before were lying and he was manipulating her like but kids get the lesson of oh acting like this to get what you want is bad and I just thought he was another really good example of a good villain but someone I thought was a bad example would be I don't really love the Avengers villains very much okay be but this is very personal preference. Oh, sure. Because I was reading lists of good things about villains. It's like, you have to be sympathetic to them and understand that they think they're the good guy. But I don't like when the villains think they're the good <laughs> guy. I like when they know they're being evil. And that's definitely a preference. But do you you know what I mean? Yeah, there's a, there's a simplicity to certain stories that are really lovely. Mm. And um, I do think there's there's been this overwhelming switch towards more three-dimensional villains. And this has come also with the protagonists who have become mm-hmm. less um, yeah. purely virtuous. They're all anti-heroes now. They all have skeletons in the closet. Also, I think that's something we can talk about next week, which is what makes a good hero. Because yeah. that's the other side of it, it's obviously. That's a good question. Um, and I do think there's definitely a place for just the evil forces. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it's quite telling that we've been mostly alluding to children's mm-hmm. uh, stories so far because those tend to have simpler lines yeah. and maybe be more impactful for that. But I think someone like Sauron in Lord of the Rings is a good example of mm-hmm. just evil, right? Like there's no like, yeah. well, actually, when you think about it, Sauron was right. And there's nothing like mm-hmm. that. And I think it really works because it enhances the drama and the contrast and, you know, the, like the virtue of the of the heroes because of what they're up against. Yeah. My favorite 
quote from Lord of the Rings is, I think it's like the king who says it. This is how to <laughs> me. It's such a bad like fan or whatever. But there's a quote when the place is just being overrun by orcs and Sauron's army. And they're like, what can one man do against such wretched evil or whatever? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And they're talking about just the overwhelming power that it seems, you know, pure badness mm-hmm. um, contains. But because of this, we get to see the power that comes with like uniting all the good forces and that's mm-hmm. always more inspiring than just like a hero overcoming his his own personal demons to finally do the right thing or whatever yeah i like all of tarantino's villains too they're all very black and white from for the most part it's like they're just evil <laughs> and i like when the villains almost are inevitable mm. for like a better word but like in lord of the rings it's a good example it was like the evil was always inevitable. Like we always knew it was foretold basically that this was going to happen. And then there'd be the fall of the elves and all of yeah. that jazz. I think there's, I think there's a place for both stories. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the villain always should lose? Mm, yeah. Always? Every time? Not every time. Okay. Um, let me think. Cause I was thinking about this as I have quite a lot because pretty much in kids <laughs> stories, villain always loses it's quite simple and on the few occasions in adult stories when it's like oh the villain actually wins this time you're always like come on because it feels like they're being um deliberately subversive but there's really no point to it Mm -hmm. and i think it it's obviously much more satisfying when the heroes win Mm -hmm. but with losses along the way like a a good example i think is wally where Mm -hmm. it's like wally is this little robot and he's rebelling against the big spaceship uh how like uh, civilization yeah and wally eventually triumphs and they bring the humans back but wally kind of dies along the way yeah and i always think that would be much more impactful if wally just stayed dead along the way mm-hmm. because then it's like oh they got it but it didn't come without great yeah. cost yeah i don't mind when that happens when the villain doesn't they, win but the hero also doesn't really yeah, win yeah, yeah. My final example for a good villain, I feel like it kind of goes along with this, is Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty. Yeah. I'm talking about the TV show because that's what I'm most familiar with, but obviously there's a whole canon. But in the show, it's like Sherlock, it's like he's a good guy. He's always working for good, but it's like almost always self-serving just out of his desire to solve mysteries. And Moriarty is, like, he's just evil, but he has his reasons for being evil. (laughs) And... I just really like that because there's so many times in the show where you're like, oh, like he's actually going to lose. And like sometimes it would leave a whole season with you thinking Sherlock's dead or Moriarty has won and this whole plot is un- unrolling and there's nothing we can do about it. We have to just watch it. But then he comes back from the dead or he figures it out. And I really like the way that that show does good and evil because it's it's always black and white. Like you always know who you're rooting for. You're never like, hey, maybe... Maybe that guy has a point. Yeah. But it's in a way that it's, yeah, it is nuanced and interesting. It makes you reflect on the real world in a positive way. Also a good example of two characters who are perfect foils for each other. Exactly. Um, I was also thinking that what makes a good villain is one who appeals or fascinates and really strikes at the anxieties of the time. Like Mm -hmm. It's a a timeliness. I'm always so kind of interested in the rise of the joker in the last like 
I don't know, like two decades or so. Yeah. It's wild. And um, I think that's that's really interesting. <laughs> and I think the, the Chris Nolan, um, Heath Ledger iteration kind of addresses this directly where it's like, it's it's explicit in the text that the Joker is representing chaos in a world that's increasingly ever more systematized and routine based mm-hmm. and automatic basically yeah so i think the kind of fascination with him where we get a new one every like three or four years and there's, there's mm-hmm. a fanfare more so even than there is for batman. Uh, for batman um is is because it's it's directly touching something that we're all quite mm. cognizant of i have a lot of to say about the Joker. Okay. <laughs> but I think that's a really excellent example of you have to be careful of making your villains too sympathetic or too relevant mm. because people, as we have seen, have Joker posters and are like, oh, I'm going to model my personality after him. I'm going to be contrarian. And I'm like, okay, these could have been... <laughs> the, the good guys could have been working towards breaking out of the simulation like it could be more matrix like than oh this is the bad guy breaking out of the simulation and then the good guys are actually trying to like maintain order you know what i mean like i don't want people going around being like oh no my role model is the joker (laughs) and they're like no it's like ironic but it's still you know he's like anti-system and he's really yeah and i like him like i don't think that's a good thing i think you need to be careful you don't make your villains too sympathetic or else you have people walking around with villain tattoos yeah i mean i think i think it's really a sad world where there's an in a not insignificant amount of uh people who would idolize the joker mm-hmm. it's kind of telling of the world rather than maybe the writing itself but yeah I, I guess there is some some responsibility there's a joker sequel being made did you hear about that lady yeah. gaga is going to be in it really yeah i liked the joker movie it was a good movie yeah, it was okay but we'll see um <laughs> What else was I going to say about this? Oh, yeah, the, the villain helps us learn and grow just as much as the protagonist does. Mm-hmm. Because take the, the, the Thanos in the Avengers, mm-hmm. right? Like it's him and it's like 1,100 superheroes that he's coming up against. But he, he's posing this specific threat to people. Like I can imagine being a kid after that Avengers movie where they all died mm-hmm. and being like, whoa, that was really impactful because these Mm -hmm. are the heroes i grew up with Mm -hmm. and so like when they all eventually overcame that big boss of thanos the kid's like yes Mm -hmm. and they feel like they you know like in stories when the hero triumphs or when the hero goes on their journey or journeys Mm -hmm. um you feel like you're going along with them yeah it's true you can grow through the films and learn through the villains in like a positive and negative way because sometimes the villains are cool and it's like they have a good (laughs) skill and they're just misapplying it. If I have that skill, I need to make sure I apply it in the right way. Yeah, exactly. You need to be more like the heroes. It's kind of the point of the they, foils and so on. They show you where, you're, where you might stray off the path mm-hmm. and what can happen to you as an individual and also to society when mm-hmm. that happens, like Plankton with the chum bucket. Mm-hmm. That's why I always find like the apocalyptic stories <laughs> wherein the, the villain has one or has one briefly, like in the SpongeBob mm-hmm. movie, to be really interesting because it's like it doesn't just show you what this corrupt worldview or methods does to the person enacting them, but what they eventually do to everything around them. Mm-hmm. Like in The Lion King happens as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good It's a good trope when yeah, you yeah. get a little glimpse of the bad the badness. <laughs> um I had another thing that I think we can talk about next week which is fan fiction. 
like the history oh. of fan fiction because as i've mentioned on the podcast i've been reading ovid's metamorphoses recently and surprised and um, <laughs> amused by how it reiterates upon uh, the events of the trojan war as told by homer mm-hmm. and fan fiction i think we look down on maybe unfairly so i think next week we can like unpack that fully okay thank you for that question so speaking of unpack the organism of the week is um cotton cotton right my drawing was in fact sufficient so everyone knows what cotton looks like but you can describe it anyway so there are these cloud-like fluff balls on a brown plant Mm -hmm. and that's that yeah so cotton is in the genus Gossypium and the family Mallow. So it just sounds soft and fluffy. <laughs> and they were once believed to grow sheep as their fruit. And some, it was a bit divisive. Some thought the sheep were like fully sheep, but fully plants. So they stayed attached to the plant. But others believed sheep would break off and then just become sheep. Straight out of Ovid. Yeah. And at that time, that myth was called the vegetable lamb of Tartray. And... It just cotton blows my mind because it's like, why is this a plant that we just have in our body all day, every day in some <laughs> form? Everyone's wearing a little bit of cotton, I'm sure. K-O-T-N. Yes. Just joking. Sponsor us, please. Please. I'd be like <laughs> one of the only brands that I'd be like, yes. Um, uh, that derailed me because Sorry. I have a cotton bag and it has like cotton and Arabic on one side. And so people always stop me and they're like, do you know what your bag says? And I'm like sure it says cotton and they're like you're right and then i have to explain the brand and the partnership with the with the farmers and everything good marketing on their part yeah anyway um cotton is cellulose a natural polymer so that's why it doesn't break down the way that if you were wearing like a lettuce shirt because that's what i was confused about when you think about like why is this a plant that we can just wear because that's not really a thing like you don't wear food well, there's those like citrus, citrus leather that they make now. Exactly. But th- those are like cured. But basically, cotton is just such a hardy fiber that it doesn't break down as quickly. And I didn't know that cotton seeds are used to make cotton seed oil. Like, I didn't know that cotton seed oil was a thing. So it's like all parts of the plant are pretty much used. The stalks are used for animal feed because they can break it down because of enzymes in their stomach and what have you. And then anything else is just tilled back into the soil because it's good for the crop when it grows again. However, it is an insanely water-intensive crop. It uses 8,000 to upwards of 25,000 liters of water to make one kilogram Mm. of cotton. So make sure you're aware of that next time you buy a pair of heavy jeans. And it's a shrub. It doesn't really look like a shrub, but it is. And it's native to tropical and subtropical regions. And something else I didn't know is that the cotton fibers grow in something called a ball, B-O-L-L, which is like a protective case. Kind of cool. And it's the world's oldest natural fiber used for making clothes. Really? Yeah. So, cotton, sponsor us. (laughs) Come on the show. Please. I can yeah. just imagine us uploading an hour-long podcast wherein we interview <laughs> a cotton shrub. Yeah. 
what's it like to always be thirsty? And then <laughs> and then we like augment our voice so it sounds like we're responding also. Or I do it like a puppet. Yeah. Like a ventriloquist. And then we send it to the brand and they're like, what? What, what is this? So we say we're <laughs> applying to be the new marketing leads. Mm-hmm. So I assume you picked Carlton because we are talking today about the story that clothes tell as well. Mm-hmm. That was my, yeah. my choice. So I'll let you uh, begin on this one. Yeah. So the story of clothes. Hmm. Where to start? I tried to keep it simple because we're going to have a whole clothing semester. But I broke it into three categories. The literal story of clothes, the story of the materials and like how they came to be, and then outfit and wardrobe curation. So the first one is the literal story of like how we got them and memories made while wearing them. Mm. And I think that is something that we all do. Like some people did a shop for very basic necessity. I'm not really talking about them because it's a little bit different for them. Well, I had a, a list actually because with regards to like the, the story that clothes tell, I thought that that story is different for everybody. Mm-hmm. So like the most common say is just ornamental, let's call it. Mm-hmm. Where it's not really doesn't really matter what you wear every day in terms of yeah. your conditions or what you're doing. Yep. Because most people are just typing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter what you wear for that. But it could also be practical. So that's like the person who I gotta wear these this wetsuit mm-hmm. because I'm surfing. Yeah. Or on a construction yard. It could also be traditional or ceremonial, mm-hmm. in which case also the wearer doesn't have too much say in what it is. Mm-hmm. Um I guess like uh the only way that's really survived in our modern Western context is like black tie events or wedding dresses or wedding dresses or things like this. Mm-hmm. Quite rare though. Yeah. It could be political. Okay. As in not just you don't just care how it looks or how it makes you look, but what it literally Sense. says on it. Um yeah. or it could be like a form of I don't want to say pride because that, that makes it seem like a bad thing. But if you actually made the clothes yourself, then it's like it's something different from just mm-hmm. wearing clothes because they look nice, right? Then it's like you're displaying your own skill it's like artwork yeah it's artwork yeah so i think there's like a time and a place for each but i do think it's kind of sad how pretty much all our clothes on almost everyone now is just ornamental ornamental or just nice looking that's all it is it's just like what does it look like nice and mm-hmm. there, there isn't a lot of weight put into that yeah and i feel like because that's the case a lot of our clothes are just ornamental it leads us to shop cheaply leads us to shopping yeah. on websites that are three I've... pairs of jeans for <laughs> 11 cents yeah or when i was at the gap that one time we still talk about it where they were selling or was it old navy i think it was the gap i they, don't know they were Same. selling they were selling shorts for 29 cents yeah and people were just walking out with cartloads full. yeah but i'm trying not to derail myself basically when you buy something from sheen or cider or whatever the shop may be you know those of you listening know it's i've seen them in thrift stores and they're just the flimsiest it'd be like if you made when you make costumes for a kid's plays it's like that like the seams aren't finished you could just tear it by looking at it the wrong way and it's like but it doesn't matter because it doesn't need to actually keep you warm it doesn't need to actually withstand any kind of vigorous activity it just needs to sit on you while you're writing at your desk or typing yeah in class and it's like that's fine it serves the purpose but it leads to a whole world of problems, which is not, I'm not going to mention today. But I was thinking about in the solo scene, how will clothes and stories go together? And basically I was thinking we will know the literal history of our clothes 
who made them, who designed them, where the materials were harvested. We'll know a lot more about how materials are made. That's something that I have researched quite a bit, but I realize not the average person doesn't understand how cotton goes from the plant to a sheet of fabric. Yeah. And at first I was like, oh, you just like, when you think about it, you're like, oh, maybe you just like roll it out and it becomes a fabric. But there's so many steps in between. And I feel like people in the solo scene will know about that, have some hands-on experience, perhaps even weaving and yeah. processing fibers. Well, among other things, that will make them more appreciative of each garment. Yeah. And one thing I find funny is that even in the most distant dynamic that we have right now between our, ourselves, the wearer, and mm -hmm. the production of the clothes, um, still front and center on the tag, it will say made in mm -hmm. wherever, made in Indonesia, made in China. It's true. So it's, so it's still like this acknowledgement that this is kind of important, mm -hmm. but that's the, the, the extent of what you know. Mm -hmm. I think there's one or two brands that will tell you like the name of the sheep that <laughs> the wool was taken from or whatever. Have you mm -hmm. seen that? Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of cool, but more along those lines is what you're saying. Because it would mm -hmm. be more local amongst other things. Yeah, it will definitely be more local, a lot more handmade. So it tells the story of the time and the place, basically. Yeah. And yeah, that's the history of the materials and the process and everything. And I think our wardrobes will be a lot more curated in that way. You'll probably have made some of your clothes, or at least someone in your family will have made them for you. It'll be a bit more, as you said, local. And therefore, you'll care for them better you will be more likely to mend them and just appreciate them. I don't think in the solo scene we're going to all have like utilitarian Soviet style like wardrobes <laughs> of like three white shirts and a jumpsuit. But I do think it'll be a little bit more intentional. Like you'll know, okay, I'm going to go out and I need a new shirt or I'd like a new shirt. It doesn't need to all be based on need. Um, but it's going to cost a lot of money or a lot of time to yeah. make it. So you'll have to be smart about your choices. Whereas now it's like, I want a new shirt. I can buy five for my budget of $20. Mm -hmm. And you do it and then they end up in landfills and they don't end up being cared for. I've actually had quite a change in mind over this kind of thing because I used to be, if you recall, I'm sure you'll recall because you were <laughs> always grumpy about how, how often I'd reiterate it, like firmly against clothes that weren't just, as you said, utilitarian and just for comfort. Mm -hmm. So basically how everyone is now during pandemic and post-pandemic with regards to like sweatpants to the office. Who cares? Mm -hmm. That's how I used to be, but like militant about it. Yeah. To the point that when people were wearing, as I call them, crispy clothes, like mm -hmm. formal wear, um, I would just get so angry. It would ruin your day. It would ruin my day. To see other people wearing them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because I felt secondhand pressure to do so. Mm -hmm. um, but now I, I think that I, I really like the idea of ceremonial wear that we're not entirely in control of. It's just mm -hmm. like, I have to wear this thing. I have to wear this um, brooch. Is that what they're called? Yeah. Not really brooches, but like I have to wear this thing that's handed down my family or because it's this occasion, I have to wear this thing. Like mm -hmm. I, I like the idea of ritual in, in clothing a little bit more than that because it feels like then we are dressing ourselves up as a character in a story that yeah. isn't, just, isn't just about us. Mm -hmm. We're part of a wider story then, yeah. which I, I really like the idea of. I also think the constraints, as we talked about extensively last week, inspire creativity mm. like there's always the in tv shows the school they all wear uniforms and there's the kid who wears her brooch and the kid who wears her skirt like the fresh prince wearing the jacket inside out yeah exactly it's like they're still wearing the uniform but they're forced to be creative and i think yeah if there was a bit more structure to clothing it would inspire almost more creativity because right now there's no limits to what you can wear you can wear as much as you want as little as you want yeah what have you and it's like 
I feel like people almost all end up just falling exactly into the same mold of like hipster. Mm. Hipster is probably not the word these days, but you know what I mean. Individualist. Yeah, so everyone's dressing as an individualist, therefore everyone looks Very exactly similar, the same. Sure. So <laughs> in the solo scene, it'll be probably be more structured because there would be the constraints of your clothes have to be like school uniforms. We've talked about that before. Yeah. That's a good example. It's like you're in this setting. Mm-hmm. We like the idea of school uniforms, so yeah. people are wearing that. And um, I also think that trends and aesthetics mm-hmm. have been codified to such a ridiculous extent that it it really takes the earnestness and I would say the joy out of dressing mm-hmm. out of clothes for most people. Yeah. So I think it's like even if you want to get rid of everything and just have three white t-shirts and three pairs of pants and just like not have to think about it be like a cartoon mm-hmm. character and just have your outfit in the closet <laughs> that is is still telling a story about yourself because it's like yeah. oh he's the kind of person who doesn't like thinking about clothes mm-hmm. he's the kind of person who wants to define himself in other in other ways yeah um which is fine but i was, I, was, I guess i'm just trying to get the point across that there is no way to not dress in a way that is defining yourself as a character even mm-hmm. when you deliberately try not to that's revealing about your character mm-hmm. yeah it's true yeah clothes are just the most political most social thing in our day to day-to-day lives because i've talked about this i don't know if it was on solo scene but basically throughout history whenever there's been a cultural or social revolution it's almost always been associated with a huge shift in style because people who are part of a movement say we're all going to dress the same and it's going to be a statement. It doesn't need to be like wearing mini skirts, but it could be we're all wearing like, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I think it changes the, the way people dress and the way people express themselves. And then it leaks into just pop culture. Basically it reflects the story of the culture, like Mm -hmm. the story of the times. I think right now what I see is that reflecting the idea that people are, Trying to find an identity. Trying to find their identityless and meaningless. Like, yeah. We, we're not meaningless, but we are searching for meaning mm-hmm. through clothing often. Yeah, um, I think so. And in trends, I mean, I don't want to get into that because those are like, what, every half a day there's a new trend. But like trends tell stories in themselves yeah, as well. For sure. And I'm also very convinced that these sustainability and like climate revolution will be very closely linked to a revolution in fashion. And we almost can see it in this early stage is like the everyone thrifts now yeah and everyone has a consignment shop it seems on instagram or on poshmark or whatever and it's like i think that is in the right direction but it's getting almost halted Mm. and it's stopped because it's so accessible it's not letting us move to the next step of local production in the first place it's like this weird dichotomy where everyone thrift shops but if they ever buy clothes new they're shopping on one of those really cheap websites, fast fashion yeah. websites. So we need to bridge the link between thrift stores and fast fashion and like make it slow fashion and then you can resell it on the thrift market if you want. Okay. <laughs> Moving on to the final question of the day. Yeah. Which is how has story been removed from places slash architecture? Mm-hmm. So I started this one, I was doing some research and trying to really define like what is an architectural narrative? What does that even mean? Because mm-hmm. we can say, like, having not really um, read anything about architecture in our, in our lives anyway, at least on my case, that, oh, yeah, 
buildings have stories. Mm-hmm. But it's like, we mean stories as in different levels. <laughs> Told you I use that pun. Um, you got it. But it's easy to say that without really understanding what it means. It's like, mm-hmm. well, this one is bruceless. So it's telling this certain story about the people mm-hmm. who live in it. But it's like, it's it's deeper than that. And it's also a little bit more evasive a term than that. Like, it's hard to define. So I had this quote, which was, architecture constantly tells stories, but often these narratives are one-dimensional, flat representations. These stories comprise a single layer, style. Mm-hmm. A layer that tells nothing of culture, history, or pride in a place, but is instead rooted in economics and the desire to build things cheaply and quickly. So obviously that's a, a critical quote about um, contemporary architecture, I guess, mm-hmm. which I thought was relevant to our question, which was about how story has been plucked out of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first thought that I had that I, I relate to you this week is that space itself is kind of like a sacred concept mm-hmm. or i think so anyway like again this is like when we talked about secular faith but it's mm-hmm. like this is a secular um idea of sacred mm-hmm. um and i think this is something that we all kind of recognize intangibly because of our our kind of frustration about the, the digital migration even if we're not very conscious about feeling frustrated about this like oh i have to work from home I think deep down we're feeling I'm tired of sitting at home because space is important to me. Real space, not like cyberspace, which is fake. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about this? You were saying to me the other day, I don't think you said it on the podcast, so I'll share it. But you were saying when you walk into a store and it's really open and airy and there's not too many people in there, but it's also not like wall-to-wall products, you feel like relief. And you're like, this is nice. Yeah, you nice. do, you do. And I feel like everyone feels that, but we don't play to it very often yeah. in our design and in our choices for space because we're like, no, it, it's boring or whatever. Hmm. Um, well, I'm not just talking about like minimalism is definitely like a, a way of understanding this. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be minimalist, but like a good example, I think, is um, quite often there'll be like a really big room mm-hmm. and people will just set about filling it. Mm-hmm. But I think that in the filling of it, it takes away the niceness of it just being a really big room, kind of mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, our apartment, we've kept it very spacious. Yeah. But it's been criticized for being <laughs> so, it's like, do you even live there? Like, it doesn't yeah. look like anyone lives there, but it's very, I guess, Scandinavian in the minimalism. It's, it's like nice. In, it's like in Step Brothers when they say, we're going to stack the beds so we have yeah. more room for activities. That's us. But we actually just like moving around. Yeah. You were saying, from the quote, it's funny because I thought something very similar in the way that we create spaces these days and how a story has been removed from it is that we're afraid to like actually make a dent in anything. Mm. So everything is just two-dimensional like ornaments. Yeah. So it's like a dentist office could very easily be converted to a cafe, which could then be converted to an apartment mm. because it's just a white square. Yeah. Everything we build now is just a blank canvas. Which I think, in part, like it's almost a sustainable idea of like just create a bunch of these canvases and anything can go into it. But I think we need to be a little bit less afraid of like actually making a mark, like actually painting the ceiling, actually carving into the yeah, columns. Yeah, I agree. I I think a cool analog that just came to my mind between the architecture and the clothing we were talking about is when people um, have that saying, which is that you should wear the clothes, the clothes shouldn't wear you. Mm-hmm. And you you can see that on people, not to be critical, but sometimes it, like I feel it myself. Like if you're wearing a a new thing or an expensive thing, that thing is wearing you. You're mm-hmm. Like you're, it's a garment, but it's like 
you're afraid to crease it is a good example mm -hmm. like with shoes and i think that when clothes are lived in that makes it so much cooler like mm -hmm. if you look at inspiration albums for fashion usually it's just the clothes or whatever but the person is actually doing something mm -hmm. like they're candid or they're like shoveling and mm -hmm. it makes it look cooler or they're farming or i told you a while ago that people on bicycles look so interesting mm -hmm. and it's because they're going somewhere yeah so there's an intent to it and i think with with buildings again like also um shaping the building which is what you're saying mm -hmm. doing so with intent and not being afraid to make it look like something mm -hmm. not to try and actually impart some characters we were talking yeah. about but also the way that we traverse these spaces if we're taking the storytelling uh subject literally then it's like the building is the setting we are the characters in the setting and we have a responsibility to the space to behave in a certain way i think mm -hmm. yeah and my favorite part about like we're apartment hunting but also just looking at real estate in general is oh this is really cool this apartment used to be a post office yeah and it's like if you were to live in there you'd it would just have a completely different literal feeling than if you were living in an apartment like we do which is very modern and just built to be an apartment <laughs> and i don't think we need to always be converting old spaces into new things i always think it'd be nice if we just built the post office in the old post office or built the bank in the old bank instead of converting the old bank into a cafe and then building new banks or the old um, train station into a joe fresh store yeah exactly and for some reason keeping anyway <laughs> i just think we need to yeah, just use the spaces as they were intended or not be afraid to make new ones that are very ornate because it's not like they're going to go to waste if someday you need to close down. Someone else will appreciate it. Yeah, I was thinking about that because we talked about obviously old buildings and story in them and how we're mm -hmm. maybe recontextualizing that, but also new buildings. Like, for instance, our current apartment building mm -hmm. is about a year old mm -hmm. and it's it looks exactly like when I say <laughs> that, everyone listening will know what it looks like Yeah, because it is... Um, very neutral colors polygonal shapes mm -hmm. and it kind of has this feeling of being machine made i don't want to say soulless but soulless and um <laughs> it's like what story is that telling about us yeah or about its inhabitants mm -hmm. it's like the, there's no place to it there's no past because you can be sure that none of the materials are local yeah and because um place-wise it, it took no care into its surroundings like yeah. it wasn't like we should, it would really complement this building if we made it look like this. There was mm -hmm. no thought about that. Yeah, and the architect wasn't a local who had a passion for building <laughs> houses. There's like, I wish I had written down the name. In England, those really posh apartment buildings. Do you know what those streets are called? They're, or in London. They're like downtown and they're like the most posh apartments or flats you can get. And they were originally built by this female philanthropist as affordable housing. And she's like, I just want to make these beautiful houses so people who have trouble affording housing, like they deserve to live somewhere nice, just like everyone else. And they did. They got to live in these nice houses and that was a trend. But then obviously, oh, these are really cheap. We can buy them and up the price. And now they're the most expensive place to live in England. Yeah. And now if you're building affordable housing, it's going to be just the most, just like cardboard boxes, basically, <laughs> with running water, hopefully. And we just need to, I feel like we all need to be a little bit more like her. <laughs> like people deserve to live in somewhere with a story like i don't care if i don't mind living in a new building i think it's excellent to live in a new building if it's done sustainably but it's like perhaps there can be something to it some character yes some, some character. character um <laughs> i'm just going to read what i wrote down here because i don't think i can word it better which is that because authenticity is so rare 
Every remaining piece is commodified and put under glass as a mm. tourist exhibit. Historic tourist places are often thus depressing because they remind us of when the world was realer. Mm-hmm. And we talked a lot about this last week, our recent visit to a famous church. And we also felt it a little bit when we were in Quebec City mm-hmm. recently, this or earlier this year, this feeling that it's such a beautiful place with a nice architecture, but it's sad how um, how crowded it is because everyone flocks here because their own towns are just lacking character. Mm-hmm. Or I guess it doesn't have to be made a tourist place, but um, they are, as you said, with the places in London, it's like they're priced out of normal people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You once said, and I wrote down your quote because you're that prolific Jeez. that we've been <laughs> priced out of authenticity. Yeah. And one final thought that I had as we're preparing to move into a new apartment, which is very, it's very simple, but it has a little bit more character than here. And I'm really looking forward to decorating it because it has a lot to work with. And I was thinking, even when I was a kid, I remember my friend's mom, she used to paint all their furniture, paint floral decorations on them. And even where I work, there's some really cool hand-painted furniture, which just the people who own it painted it. But now we don't have even the most basic construction skills or artistic skills to be able to decorate our space or have the confidence to so we rely on etsy prints and ikea decorations to try and bring some kind of life into our spaces but i feel like it just could never work you could almost buy everything pre-made but it would never look like your space because you didn't have a hand in it Mm. and i really think we can try in our daily lives just take the risk of painting your table or take the risk of sewing something to put up in the windows or frame and i really think that'd be beneficial to bringing your own story into a space we can provide the character yeah nicely said thank you so thank you all for listening hope you liked that episode if you did give us a thingy yeah (laughs) or tell your friends about it yeah yeah, it would be really excellent okay so thank you